For all of our majestic wide open spaces, America is still a land of cages. We have jails, we have prisons, maximum security prisons, supermax prisons, mental facilities, asylums, and even a couple of off-the-books black site holding tanks where we hide our more dangerous and politically inconvenient offenders. But there is a pit deeper and darker than any of those places. I want to tell you about the worst place of all. A secret government holding facility that is home to some of the most sadistic and bloodthirsty lunatics in the country. People so vicious and violent, they have to be kept isolated from the rest of the world. But people, at the same time, so unique that they have to be studied, examined, tested, poked, prodded, and in some cases, even vivisected. This place is Guantanamo Bay for serial killers. From the outside, if you didn't know what it was, you might think it was the satellite campus for a crappy community college. A small parking lot, a few trailers, portables, set up around a, a nondescript two-story building. This was no House of Usher or Arkham Asylum. If it weren't for the razor wire and the guard tower, you might not even notice the place at all. And you'd certainly never guess what evils lurked behind those bland walls. This place, it doesn't officially exist, and it has no name. It's run by a shadowy government organization called the Department of Restricted Operations, the DRO, a name that has come up once or twice before on my show. And it is hidden, more or less, in plain sight, just outside of the small town of Grace, Michigan. Grace wasn't really a proper town. It was more like a loose community of a few hundred people spread out over the floor of a long, narrow valley in the surrounding hills. Grace had a 24-hour diner, a pizza shack that delivered. They had a hardware store and a handful of other businesses. They had one church that was shared by several different religions because there weren't enough members of any one. This was a no-stoplight town. They had one cop with a tiny substation and a retired part-time weekend deputy who spent most of his time fishing. Grace was definitely a nice place to live, a little blah, but tranquil. The people there never knew that there was anything to fear out there in the woods. They didn't know to be afraid, and maybe in its own way that was a blessing because nothing that they could have done would have been enough. No one could have ever prepared for what was coming. This was to be a night of relentless terror, sadism, and murder. A night that would scar a generation and forever be remembered as the Night of the Long Knives. drinking whiskey in the kitchen and telling scary stories around the fire. 
music, monsters, and mayhem, killers, cannibals, and cults, fearful fiction and furious fact, tall tales, and terrible truths. This is a scary home companion. The little valley town was so small, you might not even notice it if you were going fast enough. Such was the case with the two people in the sleek, bulletproof SUV. They didn't notice Grace at all. They were preoccupied. Racing towards the nameless asylum in the hills, their minds were already thinking ahead and wrapped up in the night's grim task. Federal Marshal Cindy Jenkins was at the wheel. Jenkins only had a few years of experience with the U.S. Marshals, but she had built a reputation for being a steady hand with dangerous prisoner transfers. Riding shotgun was Dr. Felix Mordstadt, a consulting shrink with the DRO who worked on certain types of unique patients. The both of them were nervous. The marshal, because she'd never met the prisoner before tonight, and she'd done all the research, but she still didn't know what to expect. The doctor, on the other hand, was nervous because he'd met the patient several times and knew exactly what was waiting for them at the end of the road. Razormouth, at one point, had been his patient, and no matter how many times he laid eyes on that monstrosity, it never got any easier. He was probably the greatest living expert that anyone knew of on Razormouth. That's why he was here for this transfer. The back of the SUV had been outfitted with a genuine goddamn tiger cage, augmented with wire mesh wrapped in between the bars. There were shackles and chains welded to every juncture. It seemed like it should be enough, but with this thing, it was hard to ever be sure. Razormouth had been a human being at one point, but surgery, mutilation, an extensive body modification had transformed him into a true monster. Razormouth being such an inhuman, nightmare-inducing figure, well, that was the brass tacks of this whole operation tonight. Usually the monsters that the DRO caught were just tucked away, hidden until they were forgotten. But Razormouth haunted the American people. After what it had done at the sorority house that night, this story needed to have a public finale so that it could be buried once and for all. The post-human abomination called Razormouth was due to make a public appearance the following morning. The monster would be bound hand and foot, drugged into unconsciousness, and placed into the public eye just for a few moments so that maybe... America could have closure and move on. After that, if Dr. Mordstadt had his way, the beast would be executed and burned to ashes. The SUV turned off the two-lane highway onto the narrow security access road. Jenkins used her federal ID badge to get through two different automated gates, watched by cameras and topped 
with curly cues of barbed wire. After about a half mile, the narrow road came to an end at a large rolling gate next to a guard station. An armed man carrying a clipboard approached the car. He eyed them cautiously. He took a good long look at Jenkins' federal ID, and then he stared at the doctor. But just briefly, before relaxing into a lopsided grin, he said, uh, Y'all are here for one of our star attractions, aren't you? You're a little early, but that's okay. Nurse Louise will meet you up at the front. The gate rolled open for them. The guard watched them pass, flashed a hand signal to the tower up top, and the gate slowly rolled closed behind them. Jenkins parked a hundred feet off from the front door on the edge of what must have been the staff parking lot, sparsely populated. At this time of night, there was no one about. Jenkins got out, stretched her legs, eyeballed the guard tower. She didn't see anybody. Everything was dead quiet. As it came to pass, Dr. Williams, the facility director, was not present. Apparently, there was a critical situation in the basement, and she was preoccupied. Instead, there was a hairy-looking nurse with a huge stack of paperwork. Nurse Louise looked at Jenkins's ID and then waved them both in. She didn't need to check the doctor's ID. She remembered him from last time. She schlepped the paperwork over to the marshal and walked them quickly through the admitting lobby, past an empty guard station, and over to the first of several security doors. It was dark in here, lit up only in corners. And while it wasn't small, somehow it still felt claustrophobic. Maybe it was just the smell. Asylums and loony bins have a certain smell about them, the, the cat piss reek of lunacy. And here, it was ingrained deep, beneath the bleach and the cleaners and the disinfectants. There was the stink of insanity. Nurse Louise slid a card through the scanner, entered a code, popped open the metal door. Jenkins handed the paperwork over to Mordstadt and tried to keep up with the nurse. From below? From the basement? Suddenly came a noise that could only be described as demonic. Three primitive howls, all in perfect harmony, Something about it made Jenkins's skin crawl. Nurse Louise started to explain how the director and most of the on-duty guards were busy with a very unique patient. But then she got distracted, started running through the transfer protocols, the restraints they were going to be using for razor mouth, when the prisoner would be returned, etc., and so forth. They entered another door and another and Mordstadt started to sense something wrong. He knew from previous visits the subjects were always housed in the basement. Only the transfers and the new patients were kept up in this pod. The three-mouthed scream came again. Nurse Louise, when pressed, finally elaborated. She said, well, Yes, ordinarily, they're all kept down there. But due to this special patient, we had to move them all up here. The thing in the basement, that's what's currently occupying the director. It has extensive genetic damage, physical deformities beyond measure. 
an unbelievable strength. I'm told they found it in the Nevada desert near old nuclear testing ground. They're still testing it, trying to determine how intelligent it is. Conjoined human triplets. Can you imagine? How could such a thing live to adolescence? How could it even have been carried to term? As she's talking, they enter another security door, another scan and swipe. Finally, they enter the main pod, long, bare hallway of unpainted cement and reinforced steel doors set with small, shatterproof windows. It is definitely too quiet. Normally, it would never be this quiet, but to facilitate moving the prisoners from cell to cell, all of them had been heavily sedated. All the cell windows are dark, except one. The last cell on the left. That's where the orderlies are, securing Razor Mouth for transport. Nurse Louise starts to walk briskly down the hall, but sees Jenkins lingering and looky-looing through the cell windows, so she sighs a, a well-practiced sigh, one that said, God damn it, here we go again. But quick, fast, in a hurry, she put her fake smile back on and went back to join the others. Now, as they moved down the hallway, going back and forth from cell to cell, Nurse Louise gave introduction to the facility's handful of star attractions. First, there was a morbidly obese man with a thick, dark beard. Obadiah Moncrief, the notorious serial killer, hog farmer, and unrepentant cannibal. Obadiah looked back through the window at the visitors, licking his lips lazily from one kind of hunger or another. The next cell was occupied by a tall, thin, twitchy man who kept his back to them. Nurse Louise tapped a familiar-sounding tune on the door. <whistles> Gordon Jones, better known as Gordo the Clown, children's entertainer, TV star, deranged necrophile of the most vile sort. Jenkins peeked into the next cell and had to stifle a gasp. It was, it was a little girl. She couldn't possibly have been more than 10 or 11. Emily Mason... Super genius, sociopath, sadist. Emily had burned down her school with everyone locked inside and clapped along to the screams. She called her victims her dollies, and their pain was her favorite music. Across the hall, a hulking giant of a man with a deformed face had to stoop down to peer out the window at them. This was the summer camp killer, Ben Burroughs. The staff had taken to calling him Gentle Ben because of his childlike mind. Ben was born with profound genetic abnormalities, mental retardation, a previously unknown form of gigantism, along with a glandular disorder that kept his body flooded with adrenaline and endorphins. Ben was on the verge of vigor and violence at all times, and it seemed that the only thing that could ever calm him down was his best friend, Emily. And so their cells faced one another. The next prisoner needed no introduction. For one, because Mordstad had met the man many times before, 
for two, because Jenkins had actually done her thesis paper about him for her behavioral science degree. His name was Eric Bright, also known as The Lovers, a man driven to schizophrenia after the death of his fiance. And now this woman, her personality, lived inside his head, and she took control and lashed out to murder any woman that her man became attracted to. Jenkins gawked at him through the window, fangirling. And immediately, Eric Bright started hurling deeply hurtful, misogynistic slurs at her in a gravelly female voice. Jenkins actually kind of dug it. John Sunday was better known as the machinist. When caught, he admitted to well over 120 murders, and yet somehow he seemed to still be holding back his darkest secrets. A torturer and cult leader who claimed to have a network of murderous operatives around the globe. Tonight, he seemed well drugged out and blissfully calm. The machinists stared at them, unblinking, unmoving. They approached the end of the hall, the last cell on the left. Mordstadt stared at the light coming from within the cell. He was getting a little nervous as he always did when meeting this monster. Jenkins touched his back. Are you okay, Doc? And Nurse Louise stepped aside, said, Why don't you do the honors? He's ready for you. Dr. Mordstad approached the door slowly. His hand was shaking as he reached out for the door. Jenkins opened her jacket sort of on instinct, just so the handle of her sidearm was exposed. Now that he was this close, Mordstadt, he, he stopped. He saw that the door was already standing, slightly ajar. And then the door flew open, and Razor Mouth leapt out of the cell, landing on the doctor's chest and slamming him to the floor. As the doctor opened his mouth to scream... Razormouth opened his, revealing broken shards of mirror set into his gums like a monstrous set of dentures. Mordstadt saw his own reflection in the mirror shards, and then they plunged into his neck. Razormouth tore out the doctor's throat and went back for more. Jenkins draws her weapon, aims it at Razormouth, but Nurse Louise hits Jenkins in the back of the head with her elbow and ripped the gun from her hands. She smacked the butt of the pistol into Jenkins's head, pushes her against the wall. Jenkins is woozy, her face is cut, nose bloody. To her right, razor mouth, still ripping away at the doctor. To her left, down the long hallway, the doors all begin to open, one at a time. They're all unlocked, They've all been unlocked this whole time. The six doors open. Dark figures begin to emerge into the hallway. The lovers, Gordo the Clown, Emily Mason, Gentle Ben, the Machinist, Obadiah Moncrief. Nurse Louise takes a step back. She says, I was Nurse Louise, and very soon I'm going to be Federal Marshal Cindy Jenkins. 
In the meantime, you can call me Miss Mercy. Out front, the last remaining guard stripped off his uniform shirt and draped it over the corpse laying on the floor of the watch station. And then the serial killer and Deep South legend called the Southern Gentleman headed back up towards the building, whistling a happy tune. Cindy Jenkins was alone, in hell, and surrounded by hungry demons. Jenkins is woozy. She's concussed, her face cut, her mouth full of blood, panicked, disoriented. So out of it, she couldn't tell if she was staggering or falling or crawling down the hallway. All around her, the killers laughed. They laughed. Ben picked her up as if she were a child, and slammed her against the wall, pinning her there with his arm across her neck. Up this close, she can't bear to look at him in his deformed visage. She averts her eyes. There's a lot to take in at the moment. The lovers are cowering in the corner, the machinist looking for an exit. Gordo the clown is eyeballing Emily until Miss Mercy catches his attention and clicks her tongue, waves the gun. All the while, razor mouth, still shredding the poor doctor, and Obadiah Moncrief squats nearby, picking up the bloody scraps and munching on them. As Ben holds Jenkins aloft, Emily tugs on his shirt ever so gently. Ben? Benji boy? Can I ask you a favor, please? Ben relaxes his grip a little bit, so that he's not going to kill the marshal, but he doesn't let her go. Emily says, Benji, we've had so much fun tonight, and we still have so many more dollies to play with. And I want to share the fun with everyone. I want to give her to the thing in the basement. And at this, there is a collective gasp. Because even among these damned souls... The thing in the basement is particularly repellent. Please, Benji, her screams will be so much fun. We can dance to them. Besides, that poor thing hasn't had any fun in ages. Please, Benji. Ben lets Jenkins go, only to grab her by the hair and start dragging her down the hallway. She fights. Don't think for a second that Jenkins stops fighting. She's just no match for this thing. Emily skips along behind Jenkins, dancing. Miss Mercy walks ahead. 
being courteous enough to open the doors for them, scan and swipe, leading them back out towards the front until they reach a heavy steel pull door set in a wall right near the entry room. She badges it open to reveal what looks like a, a feeding chute, steel barely wide enough for a person, meant to drop food down into the basement to feed the thing. Ben tosses Jenkins to the floor and puts his foot against her chest to hold her still, not to hurt her, so that Emily can kneel down beside her and look her right in the eye. She steeples her fingers ever so innocent and explains, They used to feed the thing in the basement live meat. They were studying it, watching its behavior. They used pigs and goats and chickens and lambs and even dogs and cats. But they had to stop, because after it got old enough, the thing didn't want to kill them anymore. It wanted to keep the meat alive for as long as possible, no matter what kind of animal it was. As long as it was alive, the thing would make it scream and do it over and over and over until it was dead. Can, Can you, you guess, guess what it did to them? Can you? And with that, Ben grabs Jenkins by the neck and stuffs her head first into that chute. He punches and shoves her and pushes her down until her struggling legs finally disappear and she slides down into the darkness below. Miss Mercy had to chime in about how vicious that was, explaining it to her like that. And Emily responds, It's always so much better when they know what's coming. Emily does a pirouette just as the screaming starts. Jenkins shrieks in pain, terror, and in response comes a subhuman baritone roar in triplicate. And Emily really cuts loose and starts to dance. The southern gentleman entered the room. He's wearing a long leather duster now and holding something under his arm. He lit up a cigarette for Miss Mercy, one for himself, and they talked and watched the crazy girl dance around the feet of the deformed giant. They talked about the town of Grace and about how most of the others were already heading there. When it was time to strike back, kill their captors, and escape, these killers had operated like a pack. But this was not their natural order. They all had their own futures to write, their own thirsts to slake. Miss Mercy estimated they had a window of roughly five to seven hours before shift change, at which point the DRO would figure out what was happening and send a lot of reinforcements. The gentleman finished up his smoke, turned for the door, but then I almost forgot. Ben, old buddy, while I was digging my coat out of the property lockup, I found this, and I thought that you might want it. He tossed Ben a cheap rubber Halloween mask, the same one he'd been wearing when he was caught. There was still a bullet hole in the temple. Ben holds the mask with childlike delight and makes a 
oinking, happy, grunting sound as he pulls it on, covering his grotesque features. From there, the gentleman left to go find a ride. Miss Mercy stood at the front door, watching as Ben and Emily walked through the gate and disappeared into the woods. They were the last to go. Now, all that remained were her and the thing in the basement. To be honest, Mercy was disappointed that Jenkins was already quiet. She had the woman pegged as a survivor. Usually, she was an incredibly good judge of these things. But I suppose we all fall down in the face of monsters. But now that she had some time, some peace, some quiet, she could proceed with the next part of her plan. A half mile down the hill and through the woods... The town of Grace was having a fairly lively Friday night. Lively for Grace, anyway. The town's only full-time lawman was having coffee at the diner. Pizza Shack was delivering until midnight. A slumber party's worth of little girls were playing croquet in the moonlight. The hardware store was keeping the lights on till God knows when doing inventory. The radio station, two towns over, was playing special requests all night long because of tonight's big event in Grace, the huge annual bonfire blowout bash. This was a local tradition, something the town did every year going back far enough that some of tonight's partygoers had actually been conceived at that very same bonfire. Every teen within 10 miles had begged, borrowed, stole, or snuck their way out to this clearing to mark the beginning of summer and the end of school. This year's bonfire ended up being the biggest turnout ever, which made what happened next all the more unspeakable. Thus begins the Night of the Long Knives and the first ever mini-series in a scary home companion history. There's just too much story, too much madness, and too many deranged characters to fit into one or even two episodes. Speaking of characters, if you would like to know more about the maniacs you met tonight, I've got you covered. You can find out more about Gordo the Clown, Miss Mercy, and the DRO in the episode called The Devil You Know. Obadiah Moncrief's backstory was covered in All the Cannibals, Fine Young and Otherwise, my first episode, origin stories for Emily Mason, Gentle Ben Burroughs, and the lovers Eric Bright can be found in The Slasher Spectacular. The Machinist and Razormouth are both explored 
in tremendous depth in The Machinist two-parter. But be warned, that's probably the most bleak and ugly story I've ever done. The Southern gentleman got his due in historical horrors. Or did he? And The Thing in the Basement makes a cameo appearance at the end of the episode of the same name. It's almost like... It's almost like I've been building to the Night of the Long Knives for the last 30 episodes. Isn't it? People, this is my Avengers. But it is far from my endgame. A Scary Home Companion is about to raise the bar. Over the next few episodes, I will tell you the most thrilling, chilling, exciting, and terrifying story you've ever heard. And don't you dare miss a single goddamn one of them. Amazing and thematically appropriate music this episode is from Sarah Alfonso with The Asylum, Matt Siegel, Trapped in Your Basement, Bastard Noise with Forgotten Prisoners, and Sextile, the song Crimson. As always, the theme music is by the lovely and talented Chelsea Oxendine. This week's episode was co-produced by my brother from another mother like no other, Jeff Davidson. Do us both a solid by subscribing to the show via Buzzsprout, iTunes, or by clicking that little heart button on Spotify. Every click matters. Follow me on Facebook as a Scary Home Companion, or on Twitter under the handle NateFlix. Send feedback directly to me at a scary home companion at gmail.com. <laughs>